You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to Land of Legacy Podcast. This is your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. And we are excited for another podcast here um, this week. I think he's becoming a, a favorite of, of guests for us. I think he's been on more than anybody else. And it's because he's got so much great information to, to share. And there's so much that we can learn from him. Kip, thanks for joining us again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, always good to be on here. Well, like Adam said, you know, that you're a, a wealth of knowledge and often bring you know, new information to the table that sometimes I think people don't often associate. Um, like, like I always go back to the multi-use property um, podcast. We had such a great response. We often share that with, um, with folks who are, you know, into the cattle, the realm of things and, and the recreational hunting. Um, you know, that, that, that was just a really, really great podcast. We're hoping to... Um, have another one this morning as we're talking about a heated topic, the one that always just raises questions for people and, and starts a good debate, and that is doe management. And, and there's probably not a better person to have on than, than you, Kip, from the QDMA and sharing that background of, of knowledge and information and the, the statistics behind it all. So if you're ready to dive in, we are. All right, let's go. So... It's been well-published and known for, for basically the whole life of QDMA. But their stance on doe management, in, in just a nutshell, for people who may not be familiar with the QDMA, can you give a brief background on doe management and what QDMA has preached since day one regarding that? Yeah, our, our mantra has always been, you know, take the right number of does each year so that you can balance the deer herd with, with what the habitat can support. And, and we often get tagged as the people who want to kill all the does. And, and that's not true at all. It's always about taking the right number, you know, and in some places that may mean taking a lot of does and uh, some places that means taking none. And uh, so we've always tried to help teach people how to figure out what that right number is for their area. And, uh, and that's, probably more important today than ever before given there are still some areas with the overabundant deer herds but uh the the landscape is very different today there are some places that have deer herds that are below what the habitat can support so those Mm -hmm. people or those hunters in those areas you know need to understand hey let's let's learn to back off where appropriate you know if we still have more deer than we should then rather than taking one doe or two doe hey let's take five or ten but uh, being able to figure out about where they need to be is really the basis of, of all deer management. So if you want to have good hunting, and most people think of hunting, you know, from, from the buck side of that, but if you want to have good hunting, you have to take the right number of does to enable yourself to get there. Awesome. Kip, just out of curiosity, what regions, uh, I think a two, I've got two questions basically, what regions are do you look at and say, okay, that's notorious for having too many does, and what regions do you think, okay, they, they don't have enough does. They've, whatever has happened, there's not a great population of deer. They probably don't have to shoot many does. Are there regions in the, in the country that you, that you picture with that? 
Historically, uh, the answer was yes. Um, you know, it used to be that there was places in the Northeast and in, in, uh, particularly the upper Midwest, um, I think, you know, like Pennsylvania, New York, Michigan, Wisconsin, that just had way more deer than, than those habitats could support. Um, certainly that was true for a few places in the southeast as well. Alabama really comes to mind as has historically really high deer densities. Uh, a lot of the interior U.S. or, you know, it had deer herds kind of recovered later than many other places. Um, you know, never had those explosive populations like the Pennsylvanias and then Wisconsin's of the world. So we used to think of those areas, you know, as not having as many deer. Well, that whole thing has kind of gone by the wayside today. And you can go to any region in the United States and find areas, you know, within a state and sometimes even within individual counties within a state that have areas where there's just way too many deer and others where, you know, the deer herd is extremely low. So I don't think you can uh, speak about a specific region anymore of having too many or too few. Uh, I think the, the reality of it is those populations are, are varied all across the Whitetails range, based mostly on history of harvest and habitat management by the people uh, in charge of the land. I think that's a, a great point and kind of brings to, to light another question or, or insight. You know, y'all often hear about folks, you know, I don't know if it's if it's necessarily bashing the a state department or whatever it may be, but they don't may not agree with the number of antlerless tags they can get or, or how gun season has changed or, you know, how many tags they're allotted. But when on their behalf, they're looking at a, a state level, or maybe they've been able to break it down to a regional or zone level um, within a state. But just like you said, even within a county, property to property, habitat varies so drastically, and not every property is the same. So really, to me, I look at it as, you know, this is this is the responsibility of either private landowners or folks who lease those properties to educate themselves on what the, their population is on that exact property and then manage for that because they're in control of that. Would you agree on that? I'd agree 100%. And, uh, you know, what, what many fail to realize is, you know, none of our state wildlife agencies manage to the property level. You know, they manage deer on either the county level or a wildlife management unit level. So, uh, you know, I hear people all the time saying, oh, man, my agency is giving out way too many tags for my area or way too few tags. Well, you know what? In any wildlife management area, I'm sure there are areas where the allocation is too high or too low. But uh, we hunt at the property level, so that's what we tend to think about. But our agencies don't manage to that fine scale. You know, they, they just simply can't. They have to manage to the larger wildlife management unit. So, yeah, you're right. It's up to us to, uh, you know, who whatever unit we're hunting within – to, uh, to figure out what the appropriate number of antlerless deer to take is and then uh, try to take that amount to keep that deer herd from getting too low. Certainly nobody wants a deer herd that's too low. Everybody wants to see deer when you go hunting. You know? Or at the other end, keep it from getting too high and, and negatively impact the, the habitat and, and all the other wildlife species. Absolutely. It all makes perfect sense. So here's one of the biggest questions that that kind of comes to mind is, why do you think hunters often forget about doe management? I think part of it is they they want to see a lot of deer, and, and I'm exactly the same way. You know, I want to see a bunch of deer when I go hunting. And uh, so when we're shooting does, you know, we're we're working to reduce deer herds or at least stabilize deer herds. So, uh, you know, it almost works against what we want. You know, we want to see deer. 
So, uh, so I think part of it is that, you know, folks are nervous that they're going to take too many or that we don't need to take any because my neighbors are taking so many. And in reality, the neighbors are probably saying the same thing. So, uh, I think folks are nervous of reducing the deer herd. And I also think that, you know, they get so focused on shooting bucks that uh, they kind of forget about that doe end or "Ah, I'll take care of does later. And of course, and as anybody who hunts knows, it's a lot easier to to shoot a doe early in the season before they've been pressured very hard. Um, Once they've been pushed and pressured and hunted and everything else, uh, it can become awfully difficult to kill those does uh, later in the season. So I think both of those uh, pieces work together to, 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 make it so that we don't shoot enough does in many areas. And you bring up an excellent point. It it makes me think of even some of my neighbors on my on my family farm is a lot of times it's it's a well I I'm not going to shoot does cuz I know my neighbor is or I'm I'm going to shoot that buck because if he crosses the fence he's going to get shot. But QDMA offers the QDMA cooperatives um, that are a great way to kind of break that mold, get landowners, neighboring landowners talking. Could you, I know we're talking about does, but could you kind of break down a little bit of the cooperative so people that may be struggling with this can think about starting up a, a co-op in their in their neighborhood? Sure. I think the cooperatives are the hottest thing going right now in deer management, and I think it's one of the best things for, for landowners and especially for folks who, who own, you know, small pieces of land, whether it's 10 acres or 20 acres or, you know, or 50 or even 100. You know, very few people own enough land to contain, uh, you know, the movements of one deer, let, let alone a whole deer population. So what these co-ops are is it just brings people in an area together, allows them to talk about what's going on hunting-wise in their area. You know, and they can come to some uh, agreement with, hey, this is, let's, you know, take X number of does for our neighborhood. And, uh, that allows some cooperation or cross property lines. Uh, doesn't give somebody else the right to hunt your property, but at least you're sharing some information so you know for sure. All right, let's take you know 10 or 20 does in our area. So if we get two, all right, my the neighbors over there they got three. Um, so you actually know what really is going on, and you can get rid of all of those uh, you know myths or, or misunderstandings about how many deer truly are being shot. So it, it's just a handshake deal. They're all informal. But they're a great way to share information and improve the deer hunting in the neighborhood for everybody that's involved. That's for sure. You know, Kip, you've you've mentioned it twice now, and I hope I hope listeners have picked up on it. Um, and everyone knows, you know, we're we're habitat focused and in, in everything. But you've you've made mention of carrying capacity, um, especially you know regarding does and and population size. What are some signs that hunters, land managers, landowners, they can pick up on that, hey, I've got too many deer on a property, my habitat is, is stressed, or I'm, I've got too many deer, I, I think I need to, to shoot some this year or, or get some hunters in. What are some of those signs that they can easily see um, on their property, on their landscape that would basically allow them to say, okay, now it's time to step up the game in, in doe harvest? The, the two easiest things to look at from a habitat end are, um, I'll, I'll talk about one from a, a forested end and one from a food plot end, because people love food plots. And uh, if you're planting food plots and they are eaten to the ground or are not certainly grown as much as you think they should be, um, obviously you should always use an exclusion cage in those plots. 
to you know provide a little area that the deer can't eat. So look inside that exclusion cage, and if that vegetation inside that is significantly taller than it is outside, that gives you a good clue that, first of all, you know what? These deer are likely being nutritionally deprived here. There's not as enough high-quality food for the numbers of deer we have. That's a super simple and quick way to, to estimate that. Um, you can check that then by looking in the woods. You know, in particularly hardwood forests, they are made uh, to, to be growing where, you know, you should not be able to see a long ways through the woods. So if you can walk in the woods and see, you know, 50 or 100 yards through them, that lets you know that that has been negatively impacted by the deer herd, either the current deer herd or maybe the deer herd in the past. Mm-hmm. But there's not enough regeneration there. And, and I vividly remember when I went to New Hampshire, I went to grad school at the University of New Hampshire. Um, at that time, New Hampshire was probably the only state in the country that actually had a deer herd below what the habitat could support. I grew up in northern Pennsylvania, spent my life in the mountains and in the woods. When I first hit New Hampshire and walked in the hardwood forest, I thought I was in a jungle. I had never <laughs> seen wood that looked like that. You know, there was literally trees, seedlings, saplings from the ground all the way up. You know, you couldn't see more than 25 yards anyway. Wow. And I vividly remember asking, you know, my major professor, like, what in the world is this? You know, what's going on? And, and he was from New York. So he knew what I was talking about. And he told me, he said, you know, Kip, this is what a hardwood forest is supposed to look like when you have the right number of deer. And all I can remember thinking is there is more food here than these deer could ever eat. There's more cover here than, you know, than all these deer could ever use. And then it really hit me. Wow, this is way different than anything I've ever seen. And then start understanding it was because right number of deer for those areas that, you know, they didn't eat everything. So suddenly the ones that were left had tremendous food, had tremendous cover. And uh, I spent the rest of my career um, trying to replicate those forests uh, across the Whitetails Range or helping people do that on their properties. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think I think you, you hit the nail on the head there and saying, you know, you hadn't seen it, so you didn't really know to that point what that forest should look like. And I think there's a, a couple of areas come to mind for me um, in my experiences, you know, Maryland, parts def- definitely parts of Maryland, parts of northern Virginia, that you look in the forest and they're completely different from maybe areas on, in those states, western areas, um, in the mountains where deer densities are less. But if you've only grown up and experienced those high density, high population areas, your understanding of a forest and regeneration is very skewed based on deer numbers. And I feel like it's important, that's why it's so important to educate yourself on what a forest should be like, what it can offer, and trying to replicate that within, you know, your property boundaries. And in many cases, that is actively removing or does or, you know, just decreasing population numbers and allowing things to regenerate on a natural level. Um, But again, those areas you could see 200 yards plus and and it's just amazing to see the difference um in coming back out west where deer densities are a little less but still it 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 blows your mind when you when you take a step back and look wow they are foraging so heavy on this regeneration it changes the dynamic i think more people are starting to see that today as well because they're more concerned with you know, like or at least to understand the food in hey let's make sure i have more food for these deer you know more people are collecting data from deer today they're weighing them they're measuring antlers so uh you know you can take a look at even that stuff and say hey you know what you know the average doe in my place is you know 20 pounds 
lighter than you know what my state wildlife agency is reporting you know does like this should be or conversely folks doing great habitat and herd management work you know hey you know the average say adult doe in missouri dresses out at 110 pounds but you know what the last 10 does we've taken have dressed out at 130 pounds or something you know you can just compare things like that and very quickly assess on whether you know what i likely am providing enough food for the number of deer used in this place or not and then uh, just uh, adjust as necessary. For sure. So from a hunting, tying this back to the majority of guys here that are just hunters and, and people that aren't particularly maybe as interested in weighing the deer and seeing the amount of fat around a kidney, but they're like, okay, what does this mean for me? All I really care about is my hunting and and my observations while hunting. So what does a balanced sex ratio <laughs> mean for an everyday weekend warrior hunter in the, in the most basic sense uh, it means better buck hunting um certainly more opportunity as, as those sex ratios get balanced and particularly as you have some older bucks out there you know there's more competition for breeding which means you know those guys are just on their feet more and especially on their feet more during daylight hours so uh that's really the take home for most hunters you know if you want an opportunity or if, if you could do one thing to have the bucks in the area that you're hunting on their feet more certainly provides some some good cover or good habitat that makes that facilitates daytime movement but hey have a balanced sex ratio and a little competition for those bucks to breed and uh that more than anything else can put them on their feet and uh, give you a better chance of having them cross paths with you you know kip we're we're getting into the middle of january and there's still those reports and and folks are out there observing hey I, I saw a buck the other day he was he was head down chasing a doe what would you say to that person if if they're experiencing observing deer doing that those activities at this time frame yeah, you're almost guaranteed that the, the well that first of all yes they're showing running behavior and with that you're almost guaranteed that that running behavior is directed at a doe fawn um, historically, we would say, oh, there was all these adult does that, you know, that didn't get bred their first estrus cycle, so they're cycling again. And we know now that for the most part, it's just simply not true that uh, the vast majority of does are bred in that first cycle, even if you have a pretty young age structure of bucks. Um, some, some really cool research out of Pennsylvania more than uh, two decades ago now really showed that to be the case. So most of late rutting like this, it, uh, certainly a case in an adult doe for whatever reason was bred and just cycled again. But most of that are fawns. And uh, what happens is our fawns, if they hit 70 to 80 pounds live weight, they'll reach sexual maturity, you know, in that first year and breed. And uh, if they hit that, they just tend to do it a couple months later than most of those adult does. So the second rut that you typically see in areas, and certainly anything in the, the Midwest or North that you're seeing now, is almost always uh, fawn-related. You know, you had a, a female fawn or uh, just finally got heavy enough and, and – sexual maturity and man that can be dynamite hunting opportunities so the better job you do having the right number of deer for the area and provide better food you know a higher percentage of those doe fawns will actually hit uh, sexual maturity so um that's one of the reasons on our farm you know i prescribe that we shoot a few fawns each year just so i can monitor their weights right and uh, we actually shot two doe fawns this year and uh one of them uh, was in the early season, and the other was at the very beginning of our rifle season. But uh, both of those hit uh, 80 pounds live weight. And uh, wow. so that lets me know as a manager, you know what? That is great. That is really good. 
And uh, so do you want a lot of fawns breeding? I mean, their fawns are born later in the year, which is not necessarily a good thing. However, the fact that those fawns do get heavy enough to breed is a really good sign, you know, of just health of that deer herd. So, um, yeah, and it certainly can provide some dynamite hunting come uh, January. That's for sure. Oftentimes we're hunting over large food sources and, you know, food source late season, great attraction, but then you throw fawns into the mix and you can experience some some incredible hunting. Um, you, you real briefly mentioned it, you know, we're talking about now fawns or, yeah, fawns dropping into the spring and late summer. Um, when when a, a hunter observes um, a really young fawn, they've just been born in, let's say, July time frame. What, what, what's a takeaway from that that he can, he can associate back to his deer herd? Well, hopefully that, that, that fawn's mother was a fawn, so that's why it is so late. Um, and, you know, the occasional one of those, um, you know, it's not a big deal to the, to the deer herd, you know, that's not a big negative, I should say, to, to what's going on. You know, if you start seeing a lot of those, you know, just really out of sync fawns, then something negative may be going on. But to, to see the occasional one, while it may be a little disadvantageous to, to that specific animal, overall it can let them know, hey, you know what, that's that's a good sign that uh, that a fawn could hit enough weight, you know, that first year to be able to breed. So that lets them know, hey, maybe the deer herd of my isn't about in the, where, where it should be or the right number, and uh, just gives them some idea on whether they're shooting anywhere close to the right number of does each year or not. Well, really glad that... Um, those, are, those are two instances I think that oftentimes come up and leave a lot of question on the table for um, your hunters and land managers. Oh, you know, they, they kind of jump to conclusions, if you will, or, or second guess, you know, the, the health of a deer herd. When in many instances, you've got to look at the, the majority, um, especially when fawns are starting to drop. The occasional, right, not a big issue, but if you're starting to see more and more into the late, then you then you may need to start questioning or worrying things um, about the deer herd. So that's great information um, that I think will help a lot of people and answer a lot of questions as to what they're seeing and why they're seeing those instances occur, whether it be chasing in January or fawns dropping late into the summer and spring. I will say, too, one, one thing about doe harvest in the Midwest. Um, people tend to shoot does kind of – it's also a cultural uh, feeling to it. You know, how many do my neighbors shoot, and I'll shoot about that number. And um, as a region, uh, the Midwest, which it was the most productive region in the country, you guys shoot on average or on a per-square-mile basis way fewer antlerless deer than uh, the Northeast or the Southeast do. And, uh, and it's amazing, you would guess, you know, that the, the Midwest could shoot a lot more. And, and I think in many cases they can. Um, but just historically, uh, the Northeast on average shoots almost twice as many antlerless deer per square mile as uh, the Midwest does, which is, is just astounding. And, and I think a lot of that is culturally based where, you know, a lot of the people there just, just haven't shot that many in the past and are just nervous to do that. Certainly part of it can be based on just number of hunters as well. There's more hunters to to be able to take more in many of the northeastern and southeastern states. But uh, from the productivity of what you guys can produce there, in most areas of the Midwest, man, landowners could be taking way more antlerless deer than they do today. You know, with positive benefits to the deer. Yeah. I, I, you, 
I, I'm getting ready. Matt and I have kind of put the million dollar question down towards the bottom of the, or midway on the list of questions to ask you, but you kind of stir up another kind of constant statement that we hear, and I've heard it my entire life here in the Midwest, but I'm not going to shoot does because that's the mother of the, of the Boone and Crockett bucks. Can you break that statement down for us, please? Sure. And uh, that, that's not um, specific to you guys in the Midwest. Uh, you know, that, that's commonly heard in the Northeast and in the Southeast as well. You know, either that or, you know, if you kill that doe, you're really killing three deer and you're killing next year's bucks. And, well, you know, the reality of it is, first of all, to grow a Boone and Crockett, that deer has to have age and it has to have really good nutrition. And there's more research now. It's called epigenetics, which shows us that, not only does the amount of nutrition that an animal get, you know, have a big impact on its life, and we'll talk about bucks, on what he can grow for antlers, but showing that deer, a buck that is born in a stressed environment, um, will never achieve his potential genetically, even if given, you know, advanced age and tremendous food. He'll never achieve what he could have if he was born into, you know, a, a less stressful environment from a nutritional standpoint and a social standpoint. You know, there's too many deer. Deer get socially stressed just, just like humans do for around too many people. So what they're looking at in these research is they take a, you know, a doe that has been stressed herself and her sons never, never reach what they could. So it takes an extra generation where a fawn born into a good environment, then that fawn's offspring can fully express all of their genetic potential. So if you want to grow a boot and crocket buck, the absolute best way to do that is to make sure that it starts in an environment when it's born, that it's not being stressed nutritionally or socially. That more than anything else at the beginning puts them on the right path. Then they have to have, you know, good nutrition and, and be able to, to have some maturity to make that happen. But if you take two bucks with equal genetics for boot and crocket, biggest genetics, you know, in the county, and you start one of them his first year, he is stressed nutritionally. He will never, ever catch up to the other one who was started not stressed, even if they're given the same food the rest of their lives. So, you know, that whole thing of I don't want to kill that doe because that could be the next Boone and Crockett. You're shooting yourself in the foot if you have too many deer there now because you're hindering yourself right off the bat. So the absolute most important thing to grow in a Boone and Crockett buck is to starting with not having too many deer for the area making sure all those deer are getting all the good high quality food they need. That is the way to start. Uh, and in most cases, it means starting with a lot fewer deer than, than currently reside there. Couldn't agree more with, with that statement. Um, there's a lot to take away from that. And, and another one is the quality of habitat too, that those, those fawns are born into, um, you know, having that right escape cover, um, and vetting cover is, is definitely important. And I, th- you mentioned another thing that I, I hear very few people talk about, and that is the social stress that goes along with high deer densities. Can you talk more about that and some things that deer may express or not express based on the social stress of too many deer around? Sure, and I've seen this lots and lots of times uh, in, in captivity. You know, when I was in grad school, I was a supervisor of UNH's uh, deer research facility. So uh, I've seen it there. I've seen it in the wild at, at feed sites um, in, in deer wintering areas in the north. Um, basically, what happens is deer need to have, you know, adequate space themselves as well. 
and uh, just like people, you know, we some people just don't like to be in big crowds or have a lot of around. Deer are the same way. And um, just like with people, if we are stressed, you know, we tend to not be as healthy. We tend to get sick easier. Deer are exactly the same way. And, and the easiest way to prove it is to have a bunch of deer, you know, in captivity in these areas that are fed top quality nutrition, all the food they possibly could eat, and then just measure, you know, uh, how they do physically and nutritionally. And you can take deer in those environments where there are more deer than, you know, they should from a social standpoint, not from a nutritional standpoint, they have everything neat they want. Um, they tend to not produce as many fawns as more healthy deer in the wild. They tend to, to not be as heavy. Uh, antler growth is restricted. So none of that is nutritionally related. It's all socially stress related. So uh, it's very, very clear. And uh, in the wild, deer, you know, particularly at feed sites, deer develop, you know, real strong pecking orders. So you can see it in more, particularly in northern areas where deer are in these yarding situations or, or winter areas where, you know, they're in the coniferous forest to, to basically just stay alive in the winter. Um, if somebody does feed those deer or it's a supplemental site, you know, the biggest deer eat first, you know, and then they'll knock the snot out of each other. And mothers will beat the heck out of their fawns to get to those feed sites. So all of that comes into play, you know, from a social stress standpoint. And so it's not good for any deer. So further evidence that is extremely important to manage population levels and take antlerless deer if you, if you're not already. So uh, if you're saying Midwest doesn't shoot as many does as they should, then are you saying that there's the opportunity for more Boone and Crockett's in the Midwest? If the right appropriate oh, amount of does are taken. Absolutely. Absolutely. No question about it. Um, you know, so many places in the Midwest hunters could shoot, uh, a lot more antlerless deer than they do right now, which is obviously more food for the, their table or, or somebody else's table that mm. they could give it away to. And in doing so, they will better help them themselves, you know, have a chance at, at larger bucks in the future. So right number of deer for the habitat is the best start, you know, to, to growing as big a bucks as possible. So, yeah, so so many people in the Midwest are in the perfect situation, or at least from my standpoint, because I like to shoot deer. For sure. So, <laughs> you like to kill deer. And if you'd like to eat deer, oh, man, it couldn't be better. You know, shoot more, and particularly shoot them earlier in the season if possible. Uh, man, you're just setting the stage for so much better buck hunting for yourself. No doubt. And I think I'm going to apologize to the does in the Midwest next season because everyone's going to be after them. They have targets on their back, but that's a good thing. The, it's a huge positive for people, and I'm really I, – I, I hope I set it up on a tee for you, but you knocked it out of the park. That's exactly – the the message and and the, i think a lot of people need to hear um you know you are doing positive things when you're managing um and and really taking airless deer if the population allows it's an extremely positive thing for to achieve you know better buck hunting and that's what most people are after um but you basically setting aside and not shooting does or, or lack of management doesn't um is not a positive impact on the deer herd that's right. Not a positive impact on the herd or on your hunting opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. If, at least if you, if you, if one of your goals is to shoot bigger bucks. Yeah. Here, okay. So I've got another question. We're I don't know if we're ever going to get to that question, um, but the the million dollar question that is. But here's my question for you because you mentioned it, and I kind of have some theories. Matt and I have bounced some things around at each other, but we haven't actually stated it on the podcast ever. But 
when you're talking about the deer being in a social environment where they're crowded and they're stressed and there's more disease, whenever you look, for me, when I look across the landscape, historically speaking, and I see high populations of a specific animal, there always seems to be a disease that comes in and knocks that population back down. It's kind of nature's way of balancing the herd or or getting the herd back down into holding capacity. Um, what do you feel, because we've been talking about the Midwest and how people just typically don't shoot a lot of does, but it seems like those are the those are the areas that have gotten hit the hardest with EHD in the in the last ten years. Do you think there's any correlation with the uh, the amount of the high populations with the high kill rates of EHD? There, there may be some correlation with that because obviously, if you have high populations, you have more individuals you know that are have the opportunity to be bitten by the midges and and die. So that certainly can play in some of it. Um, I don't think that's all of it, though. I, I think part of it is you just see such a northward expansion of that virus that uh, that that has a, a, an equal part or maybe even a little bit of a larger part, where suddenly now you just have the virus in areas where, you know, you really didn't have it that not that many years ago. So a new virus in those areas has a huge impact on that. But once it does arrive there, heck yeah, if there's, you know, the more deer you have, the more individuals that uh, the virus has a chance to, to impact. You know, and we're seeing the same thing in Pennsylvania. We had more counties impacted uh, with, with hemorrhagic disease this past summer than ever before. You know, it's now, you know, moved as far north as Connecticut where it's been confirmed. Uh, it was confirmed for the first time in Ontario in the summer of 2017. So it's just this huge northward expansion of a virus that uh, a lot of deer herds and, you know, in your part of the world and certainly my part just, just hadn't been exposed to in the past. Yeah. Okay. Here it is. This is kind of the, the ongoing question that people always ask, uh, especially if you even start talking about doe harvest, when is the appropriate time to harvest does? From my opinion, if you were in a situation where you have, uh, very few does, very low density deer herd, and you're going to shoot some, then I'm completely fine with, you know, waiting in, until somewhere around the rut to shoot them. Or if you want to even wait till after the rut, you know, in those situations, um, I can, I can live with that. However, for the vast majority of deer herds, you know, if you have about the right number of deer or too many deer for the area earlier in the hunting season that you can start, uh, the better it is for a couple of reasons. One is if you start early, you stand a better chance of achieving your, your doe target uh, harvest goals. Um, two, it is easier shooting early in the year because those deer haven't been pressured. And three, and this is why I strongly encourage uh, everybody who hunts our place to hit our doe target as early as possible. Your buck hunting when the rut comes is so much better if you're not having to concentrate on shooting does. If those deer have already been removed, you can focus completely on bucks, which is a nice thing from a hunter perspective. And if we're going to remove some does from our place anyway, I want to remove them before the rut so that you know, there's even more competition for the existing does that are left or the bucks, you know, on their feet more. And I don't want any buck to waste all that energy chasing and breeding the doe in November, you know, just for us to kill it in early December. That makes no sense at all. So I'd rather have that energy saved on those bucks or allow them to, to you know, to breed a doe that will, will make it. So I am a huge fan 
of a early doe harvest. Huge, huge fan. And I've just seen it work too many times in the northeast, south, and west to uh, to go away from that at all. For so sure. Earlier in the season, uh, far, far better. Bingo, bingo. I think that's uh, that's a great point, and for many reasons too. And Kip, one question. I think we're gonna we're gonna throw out a scenario um, to give people real life numbers of um, you know fawn recruitments, and, uh, and if you're in this situation, how many deer would you recommend taking? Um, so, Kip, what is the average fawn recruitment rate? seen across the country it's way less than most people think you mm-hmm. know most people think those does have twins so it'd be a couple the reality of it is uh you know it is somewhere around 0.7 between 0.6 and 0.7 pounds per adult doe right that's it so you know we, you're looking at about you know three does for every three does they recruit about two fawns that's it mm-hmm so now that doesn't mean that's the number of fawns that hit the ground. That's the number that are actually lived to be, you know, six months of age and are recruited into the fall deer herd. Right. So there's only the last time we did this national survey, which was in 2016 or 17, one of, it was sometime here recently. There was only, I think, one state in the entire country that recruited uh, more than one fawn per doe. You know, almost everybody is way, way below that. And that comes as a shock to a lot of hunters, but, uh, but that's the reality of it. You know, fawns get eaten by predators, fawns die, they get hit by cars and deer just aren't having as many fawns or does aren't having as many fawns in, in a lot of places today as they have in the past. And that is 100% nutritionally related. So, uh, yeah. So the average recruitment rate is way, way fewer than most people realize. Certainly far less than one fawn per doe. Right. So if, if you've got a property, and let's say, we'll, we'll keep it kind of easy for numbers. Let's say you, you identify through a, a trail camera survey, 30 does on a property. And you've got adequate food supply. Um, you know, that's not an issue. And the average recruitment rate is 0.6. So you're saying for those 30 does, um, you, what, what, would, what would be the number of fawns that re- recruit into that, that next deer season? And how many does would yeah. you recommend to maintain that population at that level? Because you know it's a healthy level. How many does that fall would you recommend taking? Well, if you have, say, 20 does, or um, 30 does, it's, you know, the average recruitment rate being between 0.6 and 0.7 means, you know, you're recruiting in, say, if you start with 30 does, um, what, somewhere around 20 fawns maybe, mm-hmm. you'll be recruiting into that deer herd, somewhere in that range. As far as how many to shoot, there's a lot of research looking at percentage of a deer herd you can remove to uh, to stabilize the population. So, you know, take enough so that it won't grow, but don't take too many that you cause it to decline. And in most cases, it's taken between 20 and 30% of the does. If you remove that number each year, it will keep the deer herd right where it is, and it won't allow it to grow or, climb, or decline. So if you're starting with 30, you know, 20% of that is 6 uh, 30% of that is nine. You know, mm-hmm. you could shoot between six and nine of those does every year and not, and keep that deer herd right where it is right now. I think now that you can fine tune that number based on, you know, quality of the habitat and, you know, predator population and, and some other things, but that's a perfect starting place for most people to be. And, you know, maybe the first year you, you know, you shoot within that range and then see what happens. You know, all right, let's do another camera survey. Do we seem to have, you know, more does or less? So 
Once you do that for a couple of years, you can really fine-tune the exact number of does that you need to take based on that camera survey uh, to keep the deer herd where you want, which is exactly what I do. I've been doing trail camera surveys on our farm for you know, well over a decade now, and that is exactly what I use to set our target doe harvest every year. So uh, a landowner can be really, really precise with that and feel good about the number that they're taking, you know, so that we're not shooting too many. So, no, great question, and uh, that's, that's a perfect way to approach that. Yeah, I think that, you know, like you said earlier, there's oftentimes, you know, people are, are maybe apprehensive to take too many does, but just applying real numbers to um, this situation, I think it's going to bring some insight to people saying, okay, well, man, I, I've got a little more room to give. I only took four does, but really I, I could, I could double that and not have a negative impact on the overall herd, the population size on the property. Um, and I think, you know, throwing out those numbers, those situations, those scenarios is really going to help folks do that. And if you don't mind, I'm going to ask your, your farm's information. Um, and you've got a, quite a larger farm that you hunt, but on a given year over these trail camera surveys, how many does or what's the population which you see and, and what are you prescribing to the folks that hunt the property too? How many does, what's your target number for that property? We have uh, an opportunity for with three different family members on the land to hunt 700 acres. So uh, we're extremely fortunate. You know, that's, that's a big chunk of land mm-hmm. and uh, certainly can, can, can house a bunch of deer with the habitat work that we do. We have had years when we have we're tried to reduce deer numbers where on that 700 acres, we literally shot over 30 does mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, which was, it was work. It was a lot of work and very difficult to do. We've had other years where, you know, we've shot fewer than 10 does. And, uh, and actually we're at a place right now where deer herd on us and we're part of a QDM co-op. So around us, our land, our neighbors shoot a lot more does than they have in the past. So uh, we're at a place right now where we shoot, you know, 10 to, to 15 does a year is what is needed to maintain our deer herd where it needs to be. And uh, and that's a good place. You know, there were years where we prescribed fewer than that because fawn recruitment rates had really plummeted. Um, where we live in an area where there's just a tremendous bear population. So uh, certainly a lot of coyotes and bobcats too, but uh, where we are, bears impact our fawn survival more than, than anybody else. So uh, we've had years where we prescribed fewer than that, but in most years, you know, we're looking at shooting 10 to 15 does off that, and uh, that keeps us where we need to be provides a certainly a whole bunch of food and lots of recreational opportunity and uh, that's a good place and, it, and it's very doable you know to shoot that many yeah okay yeah very very interesting there um but here's another question for you when it comes to the dough management are you wanting to specifically target younger does older does or does it even matter I always set the, you know, everybody hunts our property. We have a pre-hunting season meeting where I go over all of our goals and, and rules and all that kind of stuff, you know, and, and I give them the, the target harvest that day. Here's how many antlerless deer we're going to shoot this year. And that antlerless target are those that are one and a half or older. So the fawns are excluded from that. So anything except fawns. I have a separate target harvest for fawns because, as I said earlier, I want to, I like to shoot a couple of them every year. So I have those weights. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to our actual adult doe harvest, um, I tell people, look, we want to achieve this. I, and I want to have does from across the whole range of age classes. So in a group of deer, the biggest doe in a group isn't necessarily the oldest. 
you know, I've, I've seen, you know, two or three year old does win big doe contests. They're just huge animals. They're like people, you know, I've seen extremely old does, you know, that just weren't all that big structurally. So what I tell everybody on our campus, Hey, if you see a group of deer, shoot the biggest doe in the group, that would give you the most meat. And then that will, you know, it will allow us to harvest from a whole range of age classes. That biggest doe might be two years old or three or four or five or, or older. So we don't try to specifically target one-year-old does or two-year-old or because outside of one-and-a-half-year-old does, you, know, you, you, really, you really can't differentiate those, uh, at least in our area, based on body characteristics. So mm-hmm. um, we have a target doe harvest. Shoot this, try for the biggest doe in the group, and uh, that has worked very well for us over the years, uh, allowing our guys to harvest across the whole range, or, uh, range of age classes, which is perfect for us uh, collecting data. Right, and, and what that will do is give you, maintain a very balanced adult-sex ratio. You know, throughout your herd, you have even numbers of two-and-a-half, three-and-a-half-year-old bucks to the same number of does, hopefully, or roundabouts by selectively harvesting just the largest doe out of the group. Um, like you said, you don't know age, per se, on the hoof for, for does. You can make an estimate, but those larger does, by just selecting those, you're going to take a varying uh, age class uh, of antlerless deer throughout the property. That's right. And it provides us more meat and uh, we eat a lot of venison. So uh, that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, so all this talk about does and harvesting does, when to shoot does, what big, small, whatever, does it even matter type does. But what happens if, if at a certain area – decides to not shoot does what are the long-term effects for not harvesting does well certainly if you get too many deer for for what the habitat can support you know that starts negatively impacting that habitat and it makes it so in the future that that area can hold fewer deer and uh, the longer you go with having too many deer it just continually degrades the habitat where suddenly you know that area can't support many deer at all and there's a lot of uh, state forest lands like that in Pennsylvania. Perfect example where those deer herds, you know, just never really were balanced with the habitat. So in the past, they might have been able to support, and I'll just pull a number here, say 20 deer per square mile. But since there was always more deer than there should have been, you know, today, a lot of those areas probably can't support more than five deer per square mile. You know, and nobody wants to hunt in an area, you know, that, that can't support very many deer. So it is so crucial to, to balance deer herds with habitat as quickly as possible, you know, for your long-term hunting opportunities. And if there's a certain area, you know, that, that just won't shoot does or can't, that's all the more reason, you know, for folks in that neighborhood to be involved with a, with a QDM cooperative. Because then even if that particular property isn't shooting does, you know, hopefully landowners around it are. And, uh, you know, back in uh, the early 2000s when, when we really got our QDM program going, you know, most of our neighbors shot very few does, but that was just, you know, it was a cultural thing in Pennsylvania, like it is in much of the Midwest. You know, you just didn't shoot the many does. And uh, so we shot a lot of them for our neighbors. You know, obviously we shot them on our property, but, <laughs> you know, as those deer wandered over. And that, as much as anything, is what really got our neighbors on board because suddenly, you know, they said, hey, you know, we don't want you shooting. You know, how many deer right. did Adam shoot over there? You know, hey, we we don't want him shooting all the deer. We want to shoot, and that more than anything else got a lot of our neighbors involved in the doe harvest game. And then when they start shooting does and realizing, hey, we actually have more fawns now than we had in the past. You know, and our deer are heavier than they were in the past. Hey, the shooting does is actually a good thing for us. Um, that has just evolved and snowballed over the years. Where you know, all of my neighbors now 
um, are, are more than happy to, to shoot antlerless deer and, and do their part. So suddenly hunting is just better for everybody. Yeah. I, I, I love that. I love, uh, you know, the knowing, that, okay, I'm, I'm taking deer, but it's improving the deer herd. You know, that's, that's a message I think that that certainly needs to get out there. And in that explanation, Kip, you, you threw out, I know they're just random numbers, but you know, 20 deer per square mile versus five deer per square mile. And we've talked about social stress and quality of habitat that all affects, you know, the population, of course, hunting and everything, but out there is, is there a number, let's say you've got quality habitat and is there, is there a number in which you're, you're managing for, um, that you don't want to get too many deer. Um, I know my, my habitat's good. Um, it, it's producing high quality forage. It's regenerating fine. Food plots aren't that stressed. Um, but is there a number that like, I don't, I don't want to have go over this number because I know that the social stress is going to start negatively affecting deer. Is there, you know, trying to take, trying to take the quality of habitat out of that situation, which I know is kind of, um, difficult to do, but is there a number that you say, I don't want to get over in my area? I, I don't have a specific number, um, that I, that I really try to stick to. I do, you know, the, the annual camera surveys. Um, I also do a spring pellet count survey just as another measure to the number of deer used in our place. So in the, during our hunting season, we, uh, everybody that hunts every day has to give me an observation uh, report or they keep it during the year and then give it back to me. It's just the number of hours they hunted that day and how many bucks, does and fawns they saw. And, uh, we allow so many people to hunt our land that at the end of the year, you know, I end up with hundreds and hundreds of hours of observation surveys. So that provides another measure of the deer herd. So by combining those three things, you know, and just looking at them, it gives me a good feel for, hey, is the deer herd growing slowly or quickly or declining or what? And then I combine that with just what I see when I'm on the property. What do my food plots look like inside the exclusion cage versus out? You know, what's it look like in the woods? You know, my forester can, can walk and tell me, hey, you know, you have tremendous oak regeneration or, ooh, this part of your property, you know, they're really getting hit. So I listen to, to what he tells me. I just look at what I see, and it, it's not rocket science by any means. You know, you know, power of observation is pretty darn strong. And, and I'm a, a firm believer that when, when people are on land and they're hunting it and they're doing any type of habitat work, you know, they have such a good just gut feeling for what is going on, you know, numbers of deer or, or you know, too many or whatever once they start to learn a little bit. That, 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 that gut feeling goes a long way. So I don't prescribe to a specific number, ooh, i got to keep it here. But I am always just kind of watching what is the deer herd doing. And it really doesn't matter to me whether we have 50 deer or 100 deer. What matters to me is, hey, are there more deer using our place than I have food for or not? And if there's not more deer, we may back off on our deer harvest um, because we can support more. Um, if there is more deer than we really have food for, then we're going to shoot a few more this year and, uh, and hopefully do some more habitat work. But, but I'm always watching those exclusion cages and food plots in the woods just to see do i have regeneration or you know are, are new oak trees growing or not and, uh, and that more than anything else lets me know if the deer herd is about where it needs to be and i think that's a lot more important than trying to hit a certain number or, or stay at a certain number so uh because that you know your your area is fluid it, it can hold more deer one year than, than another and so i try to just watch what is going on and then i think uh, it allows me to be a better deer manager by doing that makes total sense you know, Kip, growing up for me on the family farm, we didn't see, I mean, it was 
it was, <laughs> I'll say this, and I think a lot of people can relate, but there was a lot of deer hunts as a kid where we might see one deer the whole weekend. And I think for me, that was always a, okay, we're going to improve this because I at least want to see deer. But as I've gotten older and, and Matt's moved out here and we've started to both hunt, hunt the same areas and we're both kind of, and my brother involved, we all have the same thing in mind is we want to build up the herd because one of the greatest things about doe management I, that we believe is the fact that it's a great way to introduce new hunters. That's for sure. And, you know, for most people who, you know, can get permission to hunt on a property or to take somebody hunting, you know, it's a lot easier to get permission to allow them to shoot a doe than a buck in many cases. So, heck, yeah, you know, manage those herds that you have those deer to be able to shoot like that um, and then be able to share that with somebody. That's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. You know, Kip, you have a very integral part in operating and and producing the annual whitetail report for QDMA. Can you kind of give a background of that report, what it looks like, what it includes, and why land managers, deer hunters should read it? And, and what, what kind of information can they gather from that? The cliff notes, Kip. Yeah. When I was in college, it was like, I don't want to read the book. I want to, uh, Let's see if we can find the cliff notes. <laughs> That's right. So the, the cliff note version is uh, every January we publish an annual whitetail report which uh, is really a State of the Union address on what's going on in the whitetail world. Um, the, the, the first part of that is all harvest data. We, we conduct a, a, an agency, a state wildlife agency survey every fall and, and collect data on numbers of deer that are shot, age structures, and, and everything else we can get. So the first part of our annual whitetail report is all state-by-state state and, and province-by-province deer harvest numbers. Numbers of bucks killed, bucks killed per square mile, how many were one and a half and two and a half and three and a half years of age, that kind of stuff. Which, which if you're a hunter, I mean, it's awesome to be able to look at how your state compares to other states. And so anyway, the first part is all harvest data. The second part is all of the, the current trends or the biggest issues or threats impacting whitetail deer. Uh, and, and that chap part changes every year. Sometimes you know, disease issues are the biggest. Other times predator issues are the biggest. So we include things in there. Um, this new one that's coming out here uh, later this month um, includes chapters like on crossbow use, you know, what states allow crossbows for hunters during the archery season, uh, where trail cameras that have texting capabilities are legal or illegal to use, uh, which states allow the use of drones during hunting season, uh, all kinds of stuff like that. So from a, from a deer hunter end, you know, if you're a deer nut like I am, uh, it's, it's an awesome resource. It's free. Uh, it's on our website, and you know it's it's used tremendously by by hunters and the media and uh, natural resource professionals. So uh, we're pretty proud of that. Yeah, I, I I oftentimes nerd out on it and and go back and read and and I like to go back and look at the history that you guys have produced over the, the thirty years and just see how drastically things have changed within the the landscape of of whitetail across the entire nation you know the mindset of hunters you can almost see that those cultural trends begin to change and and as a result of that the whitetail herd has changed um and i think that's really incredible to see and um hats off to you guys for producing a lot of that education that has really shifted things um and put a, a more a better focus i guess on the herd as a whole and how to manage that um, so that's a great resource for anyone who wants to learn more about deer um, 
on not even a, a state level but a national level and look how how it's changed throughout um, many years so that that's that's a great resource kip we thank you guys for for putting it out there i will thank you and uh we, we, we publish one every January, so anybody can go to QDMA.com and just look under a whitetail report. And uh, they are all the way back to 2009 when we started that. Uh, they are all free downloads for folks. So uh, if anybody's interested in that uh, that data, um, they, they can go there and grab it for free. Awesome. I hope everybody takes advantage of that and checks it out. Kind of wrapping things up, Kip. Is there anything else new in the whitetail world? Anything QDMA? What's 2018 looking like? 2018 is exciting for us. We uh, we published a, a new set of five-year goals uh, at the end of last year and uh, that we're starting this year to achieve. And uh, there are some, in my opinion, some really exciting things that, that we are going to do with, uh, you know, our staff and our members and uh, our, our awesome branches. You know, things like uh, we have pledged that we're going to mentor a million hunters uh, in the next five years. We're going to donate a million dollars to, to Whitetail Research. We're going to share at least 20 million venison meals with family and friends. Um, stuff, you know, that deer hunters can just really get excited about. You know, research helps us be better hunters, which is cool. You know, we wanted to make sure that we can take somebody hunting and share our hunting heritage. Certainly donating venison, you know, to needy families um, from the public land side. And I'm really excited about this. You know, we're going to um, double the number of habitat improvement projects that we do on public lands. Hmm. Uh, we get involved in numerous states to help folks, you know, who don't have access to private lands. So uh, I think that's a huge thing, you know, and a lot of people belong to QDMA, you know, who, who don't own land. Actually, a full third of our members don't own any land. You know, they hunt public land or hunt friends' land. So, you know, I'm glad, I'm, I'm proud that we have a big push on the public side of that, you know, to work with states and help provide labor and in some cases, you know, seed or fertilizer or whatever, you know, to, to make sure we can have better habitat on public lands for folks. And uh, one of the things we, that I'm really proud of that we have touched on here is that, you know, the whole QDM cooperative thing, um, we've pledged that we're going to place 35 million acres in QDM cooperatives throughout the Whitetails range. Um, a lot of our members are already involved. We have some, some wildlife uh, cooperative specialists on staff that work with landowners, certainly two of them right in Missouri uh, that work with landowners every day to do that. So we're, uh, we're putting our money where our mouth is and are making a huge push that, uh, Ten to five years, we're going to make darn sure there's at least 35 million acres of, of, of private land in these QDM cooperatives to help uh, to help hunting in those neighborhoods and be so much better for all those people involved. And uh, I'm excited about that. So 2018 is the first year of those five-year goals, and uh, I think it's going to be a great year for us. Those are incredible goals. Awesome, awesome to hear just that that focus. And if and if. Uh you're listening to the podcast and you guys aren't a part of the QDMA or aren't behind them, supporting them, helping them achieve this, really encourage you to do so. Um, The the impact that they want to make and are going to make is huge, but uh, you can certainly be a part of that by joining the QDMA if you're not already. Kip, thank you so much for coming on. It's always a pleasure. Um, Just thank you for you sharing your information. You got it, guys. My pleasure. Uh, always great to talk to you, and uh, thanks for what you do. Uh, you certainly reach a lot of hunters and land managers, so uh, you're good at it. I appreciate the opportunity to be on here to, to share some of the information and, uh, and help out. So thank you. Uh, you guys have a great day. Same to you, Kip. Take care. That is some awesome, awesome information. Really answers a lot of questions that, that come up in the debate of doe management, 
herd health. What do I do about my population? How do I analyze my population? And uh, Kip knocked it out of the park and, and really gave some solid answers and information that everybody can use. Even if you're a public ground hunter, um, you own land or you lease land, that information right there um, can certainly help you in your hunting season for years and years and years to come. Oh, no doubt. I I just, you know, there's so many things said about harvesting does. It seems like it's kind of one of those debated things, but everybody's got their opinion on it. And a lot of the time, the opinion is kind of those similar, well, I don't shoot does because the, that's the mother to the Boone and Crockett's. I, I don't shoot does because my neighbor's does. My neighbors shoot nothing but does, or they shoot a pile too many does. So I just I want to see more deer, and pretty much all the research suggests that we've been looking at it wrong, or or kind of looking at the way we manage our property wrong. Um, to me, when I look at does, I just think, boy, this is just a great opportunity to get some more meat in the freezer, and also introduce more people to hunting. Well, and like you said, in, in many instances, you're improving the overall herd too and improving your chances at tagging a buck if you're taking does at you know, the right time. So I, I find it hard, you know, in, in most people's cases, most most regions across the, the country, that taking does is, is going to be a negative impact. Um, but that's why you do the analysis, you do the trail camera surveys and, and try and gather the information so you can make a, a, the most positive impact possible um but he just he outlined it i'm gonna say excuse the pun but i think people get in the rut about hey this is the information i know this this is what grandpa told me i don't mean to be rude but sometimes grandpa was wrong <laughs> and new research has come out that that is is different provides a different um information about shooting does and the current status of a deer population and we got to open our minds and think about that. Things change. Things change on a year-to-year basis. And we need to be informed about those changes and make the right management decisions, whether it's to take the dough, when to take the dough, and how to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, one of the biggest kind of the takeaway, being on the on the flip side of that, I've been on properties where we had goals to shoot does, but the goals were so high that it was like, by the time, the amount of hunting it's going to take to knock out that many does, we're going to be hunting a lot and putting a lot of pressure on this farm to a point where it's like, I don't know if we're going to see many of our mature bucks because we're all over this place just trying to knock the herd pop the the doe population down to where we can actually hold the deer um, and have enough food here. Uh, and I think this whole conversation, one of the biggest takeaways is that it's not a every three years we're going to knock the does back. This is a every year you're going to knock a few back. So grand scheme of things, over a five-year scale, you've just killed a few does every single year and your herd your herd uh, population is, is in check rather than in every five years you got to go in and just break the guns out and shoot a pile of deer. You know what I would I would love to see, and I I'd, I'd love to see this just scream across the country. But you know how quickly hit list became 
you know, a term and a phrase and, and people just started developing this hit list. You know, prior to every season, they're, they're taking inventory of the bucks. They're, they're doing this, they're doing that. We need to take a hit list for does. We need to have that number that just says, hey, these are the bucks I'm, I'm targeting, but I'm hitting this number of does too. And I, I'm just going to go after it. I'm going to target this buck. I'm going to target this number of does, and I'm going to get it. Set yourself a goal. Set yourself a standard. Each season as you're entering it, you do it for bucks. So why not do it for does and and achieve it? Set that goal and, and get after it. Yeah, I think that pretty well wraps us up this week. I uh, I hope everybody learned something. hope maybe it opened your eyes on herd management. Maybe it's going to let you, now you've kind of released um, – the cage of, of, okay, I want to shoot some deer, but I know I should probably let those does walk. Now you can go, okay, well, I need to take a few does. If you're in a situation where you have uh, adequate deer numbers or high deer numbers, you need to continue taking more does. This gives you a chance. But other than that, I think next week we'll be back. Who knows what the topic will be next week, but we hope to see you there. I I think what this podcast did Uh. was just click a lot of safeties off. Like, everyone's you know kind of hesitant and then they just bloom flicked the flicked off the safety and it's like time to get after it well i was wrapping up but now you bring up an interesting thing so the does that i'm gonna harvest are the ones that that blow at us <laughs> yeah <laughs> or the ones that peg us it seems like this year we shot a we shot several does that were like okay i'm really not i'm not planning on shooting a doe uh, oh she's getting alert she's she, i'm gonna shoot her i'm gonna shoot her and to me, that's how it always works is, you know, I'm not out there mad at them, but certainly if given the chance and then in the, and in most cases, if they're going to blow our cover, then it's time to shoot those. Yeah, I agree. That's a great opportunity to, to take advantage of, but I think, uh, I think that wraps it up. Yeah. I guess we'll catch you guys next week. We'll see ya. Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you like what you hear, check us out at landandlegacy.tv. You can submit a viewer question right there, and we're answering the podcast, or find us on Facebook and Instagram. Feels pretty good knowing that from the beginning of time, God has called us to be a caretaker, a gamekeeper, a manager of the land. So with that being said, don't you think we should do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God? Yeah.